Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I would just like to say thank you for your encouraging words uh, regarding uh, the transition that's coming with me uh, taking uh, a position with our church network in the Northwest. Uh, um, it is uh, humbling and uh, encouraging to, uh, to know that you've been a blessing to someone and uh, I um, got an email from somebody that way this morning, and I thought, oh, thank the Lord. Uh, I will miss days like this when we have great worship, and then we get to recognize and pray for and send off one of our own. Um, it's great to, uh, great to see what God does over the years and uh, help people grow up and what they become and... and uh, you know, as I contemplate my new role with the Baptist Network Northwest, I'm, I'm keenly aware of the responsibility of, of counseling with pastors and, and the advice that is given. Uh, typically in my counseling, I don't advise people. I teach them. Um, when it comes to sort of applying that, you're in a position to say, well, you could think of this, you could think of that. And I thought of a couple of pieces of advice I've gotten over the years and one of those in particular revolved around when I first became a senior pastor and I was starting to preach every week. I, you know, I'd been a youth pastor for five and a half years, but uh, it was a different thing. And I went to a seminar, and there was a man who was a, a very well-respected man, a great preacher, a great leader in the, in the Lord's work. <clears throat> and one of the things he said was, you should type your sermons up. Now, remember, this is before computers, obviously, and uh, I had a manual typewriter similar to this. It wasn't exactly like that, but similar. And uh, I had typed my college papers on that. And he said, you should type your sermons up. It'll force you to be more organized. And if your sermon's worth preaching once, it would be worth preaching again. And so typing it up will prepare you for that. So um, I thought, okay, I'm going to type my sermons. And I went home and started typing my sermons. Well, three years later, personal computers hit the market and I was ready to go. I had taken typing in eighth grade, and then I got all this practice for three years, and when the computers came, my keyboarding skills were, were ready, and I was uh, ready to go. In another seminar I went to, I heard a pastor talk about planning your preaching schedule. And, uh, you know, he talked about this and that and the other, had a lot of ideas, and one of them was, he said, in January, you should preach something kind of positive and upbeat because people tend to be a little down, you know, after Christmas, it's kind of a letdown, and so you should preach something positive and encouraging, and, and so I thought on that, and the first thing I thought of was, well, meat sacrifice to idols from 1 Corinthians, that would be really positive. <laughs> what an ideal topic for January. <laughs> Well, when you work through books of the Bible, you can't uh, necessarily choose uh, what you're going to preach on at a certain time of the year. But today, as we have been working through, and there's been some work to get through in this passage, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, we've come to one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. And uh, let's see if you can pick it out as we read from 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our, 
All of our fathers were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and they were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore to him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. We've come to verse 13, and I believe it is one of the most uh, encouraging verses in the Bible. I want us to read it together, because if you've never memorized it, I really want this to cement into you today. So let's read it together. Here we go. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What uh, an encouraging verse. We're going to learn some things about temptation today, starting with what is temptation? Temptation, the word that's used here, the root meaning means a test. means a test. And it's translated in a couple of different ways. It's translated test and, or, or, or trial, and it's translated temptation. Um, the idea of a temptation is testing by the solicitation or the inducement to evil. Okay? A clear example of this uh, is in the life of Christ from Matthew chapter 4. When we read these words, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And we hear the end of the story in a very instructive way from Luke. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him till an opportune time. Satan's goal was to get Jesus to sin. But the root concept stays here. It is a test. Okay? Satan threw out everything he could to get Jesus to change, to step off of God's plan and onto Satan's plan. But of course, he didn't do it because he was the Son of God. He felt the trial, but he never gave in to the trial. Now, the word. Uh, temptation is also translated as trial. And a trial 
means a test by the experience of hardship or difficulty. A test by the experience of hardship or difficulty. The, the, the text that is really familiar to us is James chapter 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's very different from an inducement to evil. Okay? If I am walking along and not paying attention and I fall off, that is not me choosing to do wrong. Nobody came and said, would you please do wrong? It just happened. That is a trial. Temptation is an inducement to sin. Now, these two things come together. There is a relationship between them. They are both testing. And so a temptation or an inducement to evil has an element of hardship in it. A trial or a testing by hardship has a temptation or an opportunity to do wrong in the handling of that difficulty. An inducement to sin is a hardship. A testing by hardship presents an opportunity to sin. A temptation is a time of testing either by the inducement to evil or the experience of hardship. But here's the key. These are both allowed by God to cause our spiritual growth. So the question we ask next is, who has temptation? Who has temptation? Well, first of all, every Christian who still has human desires. Every Christian, and we read about that in James chapter 1. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone else. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. God never comes into our life or around our life and puts evil in our life so that we will be tested in regard to sin. We have internal desires that pull us toward temptation. We'll come back to this in just a minute. But there's another category of person who has temptation, and that is every Christian who God loves. We read about this in Hebrews. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, don't despise the discipline. Literally, when we see the word chastening, as in the King James and the New King James, we tend to think of it as uh, payment for evil. You have done wrong, and I'm going to spank you to make you pay for the wrong that you have done. That is not how God disciplines us. This word would best be translated discipline, which in its meaning, its real meaning in Greek is training. The good parent does not punish the child as in you have to pay for your sin. The good parent spanks the child or gives him a timeout or does whatever he's going to do because he wants the child to remember not to do wrong the next time or because he wants the child to turn from the wrong that he's been doing. And so you give the child the reminder in whatever form it comes in, and that's what God does to us. When we are living in sin, he reaches down and says, that's not good for you. And he does things to change our life. And sometimes we perceive those as trials. 
Don't be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For indeed, for our human fathers for a few days chastened us or disciplined us or trained us as seemed best to them, but he, get this, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. One of the things that we forget about, both in trial and in temptation, is that God allows them, in the case of trials, he may cause them because he wants us to be more godly. All we can think about in trial and temptation is take it away, take it away, take it away. And God up in heaven is going, grow up, grow up, grow up. Why is this important to understand who has temptations? First of all, we must realize that temptations and trials are normal. Temptations and trials are normal. Sometimes we get whiny and we seem to think that we deserve a challenge-free life. And we don't, nor will we ever have a challenge-free life. God, please, we, we, we don't pray it this way, but this is what we're thinking. God, please make my life easy. Give me everything I want and make it easy. And that is not what God promised. And according to God's wisdom, that is not what is best. We must realize that trials and temptation, both the testing by hardship and the testing by the inducement to evil, both are normal. Number two, we cannot blame sin on some unavoidable force. Okay? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. We can't look at our temptation and say, oh, there's some force at work here, and I can't say no to the temptation. No, that's not true. God is orchestrating this process. John Phillips put it this way. There is no advance in holiness which renders us safe from temptation. The Lord Jesus himself was tempted by Satan. We need to understand that temptations are normal and, and we cannot blame our temptations on something else. The normal Christian life is one with challenges which can either be moral or just plain difficult. The first piece of good news that we've seen here so far is that temptations are customary or normal, even if they are difficult, and we'd like to do without them. The news gets even better when we come to the second part and we realize that temptation is controlled by God. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able the foundational truth here is this, God is faithful. God is faithful. The faithfulness of God has been defined as that characteristic in which he always acts in a way consistent with his character. He always acts in a way consistent with his character. We don't, okay? We feel this way or we feel that way. We get up in the morning and, well, I don't feel like this or I don't feel like that. Whereas God has a character and he always acts in line with his character. 
Uh, Paul expressed this in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, you know, sometimes we don't walk with God as closely as we should. He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. In other words, God doesn't look down from heaven and say, oh, you, you don't deserve it today. I'm going to turn away. No, God is faithful. God is faithful. And, and one of the great blessings of this is that God will not treat you different than the person sitting next to you or than he will treat me or anybody else because Peter said in Acts chapter 10, God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. He doesn't have favorites. The real key to the, to the blessing of God's faithfulness is though is what he does in his faithfulness. Look at verse 13. He is faithful to do what? To not allow you to be overwhelmed by a temptation. The encouraging truth, God knows your limitations. Psalm 103 says this so poetically. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers that we're dust. We don't remember that we are dust sometimes when we look up to heaven and we want to tell him what to do. Okay, now God, let me tell you how this is supposed to go. Can you imagine with all of his wisdom and all of his knowledge of the past and the future and he hears our thoughts complaining about what's going on in life and and wanting him to do something different. Can you imagine how that must sound to him? And he said, don't you know what you're made of? The good thing, the great encouraging truth here is that God will not expect too much from you. Of course, God's faithfulness runs into our desire for an easy life. When a temptation to a sin presents itself, our Many times our thought is, doesn't God know I can't handle this? Here's a, here's a little, uh, what is this? I'm not sure if I call it a, uh, a riddle or a little proverb, but I, I've often said this to people, and I'll say it to you, and maybe you could write it down and think about it. How do you know if you can handle what has just come into your life? How do you know if you can handle what has just come into your life? And if you've been in my Sunday school class, this is the point at which I'd say this is a trick question. Because it's there. That's right. If it's here, I can handle it with God. Now, the, the greater truth would be this. I don't want to handle it. I don't feel like I can handle it. I don't think I'm up to it. Those are honest statements. But never say, I can't handle this, unless what you mean is, without God, there's no way. If that's what you mean, then you're right on. But if you're saying, this is a mistake. God should take this away. This is too much. Doesn't he understand what I just went through yesterday? I want to liberate you 
from believing that you get overwhelmed. Now, I, I, I will give you this caveat. If you've made a whole series of sinful choices and you've come to a spot in life where you feel overwhelmed, then go ahead and blame yourself. But you know what I believe this verse teaches? Even at that moment, God knew you would get to that moment. And he can help you bear that moment. There is no temptation overtaking you, no trial, no temptation, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. I have a friend in Seattle who is a fairly young Christian. She's not young in years of life, but young in the Lord. And, and she got cancer, and she went through chemo and, and such, and got over it. I, I don't know... I don't know if she was declared cancer-free. I don't know the whole regimen there, but she basically got through it and got over it. And then she got cancer again, and it was worse. And she called me up, because she doesn't really have a pastor, and she said, what is God doing? She said, you know, when I got cancer before, I, I turned back to the Lord. I'd been away from him for many years, and, and I've been, and she described her Christian life, and and, 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 and now God's given me cancer again. What in the world is he thinking? I'm exaggerating just a bit, but that's what she was saying. And I basically had to say, boy, I, you don't deserve cancer more than anybody else in the world. You see, we've gotten this crazy idea that if something bad happens, well, I need to do a bunch of good things so then God will reward me with an easy life when the whole point of God allowing the hard things is for us to grow up. And if in his grace he brings it back, he knows we're ready to grow up some more. God knows your limitations. There are moments when we need to remember this verse and remind ourselves God does indeed know exactly how much I can take. And so if this huge thing has come into my life, I can handle it. We need to be liberated from our human limitations and understand what Peter wrote when he said, let those who suffer according to the will of God Commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. No matter what is happening in your life, no matter what is coming, we trust ourselves to the faithful creator, and he is able to carry us through. Because God understands us perfectly, we can believe that the third great thing is true here, and that is this. Temptation is created with a potential for success. Look at verse 13 again. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, the trial or the test, the temptation to evil, with that, he will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In other words, if God brings a testing to you like he did to Abraham, he brings the way of escape. If he allows Satan to come in and test he brings that way of escape there. 
The first thing we need to understand with this is God knows exactly what is happening. There is no mistakes. It's been a, a doctrine, a concept of the doctrine of God promoted in recent years called open theology. And the idea of open theology is that God created the world and he set some things in motion, but God doesn't know all of the choices that people will make. And so there are times they, they make choices that, that he wasn't expecting or wasn't aware of. Um, that's an easy way to explain some of the hard things that happen in the world, but it really brings God down to the human level. God exists outside of time, for he created time. He, he sees the past from the future. God knows exactly what is happening. And, and in our humanness, we look up and say, are you sure? And, you know, humanly speaking, I, I have to agree sometimes. But I'm so glad I'm not in charge. I mean, honestly... Would you really like to be the sole control over your life? Because, of course, you'd have to control all of the lives around you, right? I'm so glad that God is in charge. He knows what is happening. We often pray for God to help to stop things, to change things, but remember that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Jesus didn't just go out for a walkabout, as our friends from Australia would say, and, and, and oh my, 40 days later, I haven't eaten anything, and here I am in the desert. Oh, what's happening? No, God led him out and led him into hunger and fatigue, and he knew that the devil would wait till Jesus was really starving, hungry, and the devil would come and say, hey, make these stones into bread. He knew how hard that test would be. God knows how hard your tests are. Do you remember the story of Abraham? Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham, have you missed that part of the story? No, you see, God knew what was going on. God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. God knew what he was going to do. He knew what Abraham could handle and so he put him to the test. God knows exactly what is going on. And that's why in James it says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone else. God will not bring evil into your life, but he will bring difficulty, and he will allow evil to be brought into your life. We read that about Job. So Satan answered the Lord. Satan was talking to, to God about Job, and he said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge or a fence of protection around him, around his household? Just stop there for a minute. There's a hedge around you. God, God isn't up in heaven going, wow, I wonder what Satan's doing today. Wow, look at that. 
oh, I guess I better go down there and do something. God controls what happens in our lives. Satan was up there, oh, come on, God, you know. And, and of course, Satan, look at what he says. You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased. But Satan tries to get God to do something. Now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Do you understand God opened the gate to the hedge, but he didn't take it down completely? All that he has is all that he possesses. His stuff of life is in his hands, but you cannot lay a hand on his person. Now God eventually lifted that part of the hedge as well. So Satan went out from the presence of God. God allowed Satan a certain amount of access. Now, frankly, especially if you're younger in the Lord, you're thinking, why in the world does God do that? If he can control Satan, why doesn't he just go... Well, that's going to happen. But between now and then, God wants us, like Job, to have genuine faith and genuine righteousness coming out of that faith so that God, you see what Satan said? He goes, the only reason Job follows you is because you bless him financially. And God essentially says, let's see if you're right, Satan. Now, does God need to prove that? No, he doesn't need to prove that. But he's demonstrating who he is. And he, we get to see Job enduring great difficulty. We don't want any trials or any temptations. I don't want any trials or any temptations. I get tired of struggling with sin. I get tired of aches and pains. I don't want that. But God knows what is best for me. And he knows how much I can bear so that whether or not I can find it in myself, I have to realize that with God, I can handle anything in a way that honors him and in the process brings blessing to me. Which brings us to the next thing that God knows. God knows how to help you through what is happening. I don't often do this, but I'm going to put the whole quote on the screen because I want you to read it and think about it with me from John MacArthur. The way of escape, verse 13 says God will make a way of escape. The way of escape is through. Whether we have a test by God to prove our righteousness or a test by Satan to induce to sin, there is only one way we can pass the test. We escape the temptation by not getting out of it, but by passing through it. God does not take us out. He sees us through by making us able to endure it. That's the miracle. This, this terrible thing comes on us, whether it's a, some physical trial or some, some temptation to evil. It, it's not hard to see how that if God reached down and just flicked away the sickness and we're well again, we go, well, I'm good today. But when we endure through a hard difficulty, and we're praising the Lord and honoring the Lord as we work through it, we come out on the other side, either in heaven or better here, and people say, wow, look at the way that person endured that difficulty. 
God's character is shown by our character through that difficulty. A number of years ago, several of my acquaintances in our Northwest Fellowship failed to pass the test of, of the inducement to sin. And they, they lost their ministries because of giving in to sin. And I remember thinking at that time, and I even talked to some of my friends, and I said, oh, I wish there was some way that I could get to them before they get there so that they wouldn't fall down, so that they wouldn't be put out of the ministry. God knows what we're going through, and it is always possible for us to say no and to succeed through the trial. There is not a reason for us to give in. The Apostle Paul talked about putting up with difficulty in 2 Corinthians 12. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He's talking about what appears to be a physical challenge. He calls it his thorn in the flesh. God gave it to him to keep him humble because of some visions he'd have. And he says, I pleaded with the Lord three times, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, therefore most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities or my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest on me. We don't often think of the Apostle Paul this way, but the miracle of his life is that he kept going even in the midst of tremendous difficulties. Tremendous persecution, tremendous physical challenge. Some of these challenges were on him so much that people said things about him. Oh, he's, not, he's nothing special, and he's kind of weak, and he's kind of this and kind of that. We read the tremendous scripture that he wrote, and we think, how could anybody think of him that way? And yet he suffered through these physical things. God knew what Paul could handle with his help. God knows what you can handle with his help. So if God will not allow you to be overwhelmed in a temptation or a trial, then what we need to do is to make sure we are clinging to God in the temptation and in the trial like Paul did. See, it's not a matter, there, there is something for us to be, to be doing. We don't just sit here and say, okay, God, take me through. There are things for us to do in that process. And the first of those is righteous living with no excuses. What does it mean to cling to God in the temptation? Righteous living with no excuses. What do I mean by righteous living with no excuses? Well, what I mean is this. It's real common for a person to get into a difficulty and then think, hmm, what's the best way out of this difficulty? I know. And what they have come up with is not righteous, it's sinful. And if you talk to them about it, they'll say, you don't understand my difficulty. 
as though the intensity of difficulty makes it allowable to sin. That's a prime thing that we see with Satan and Jesus when he says, turn this bread, turn these stones into bread. Did God intend for Jesus to survive physically, to thrive for another three years until it was time for him to die on the cross? Absolutely. Was God going to feed him? Absolutely. Was it his business to use his power in a way that served him personally? No. He had to go through this, and when the temptations were over, do you remember what happened then? The angels came and ministered to him. I think the angels brought dinner. Yeah. Righteous living with no excuses. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of the wilderness. For your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Was God intending to take the children of Israel out of Egypt into the, the geographical area of Palestine and provide for all of their needs? Was that God's plan? Okay. And so when they came out, and there was a little bit of a hardship, they went, oh, we're going to die. Oh, it would have been better to be back in Egypt. And, and then God took care of things. And then they go along, and there's another hardship. Oh, where's Moses? We don't know where Moses is. Oh, things are terrible. And on and on and on. They failed to say, you know what? God's going to get us there. And it may just not be the way I think he's going to do it, but I'm just going to keep walking with him. I am going to do what is righteous no matter what. I'm not going to lie to fix my situation. I'm not going to jump out into a sinful relationship to fix my loneliness. I'm not going to steal something. I'm not going to kill somebody. I'm not going to divorce someone. I'm not going to do any of these things to fix my situation. I'm going to go through with God by righteous living, righteous living, righteous living. If you want to figure out what to do in your trial... Just ask yourself, what is righteous? And do that day by day, step by step. Righteous behavior, as defined by God in the Bible, is always the way to respond to a temptation or a trial. There is no, there is no allowance for us to come up with another way. The second thing that we've got to do is exhaustive prayer with no exclusions. Now, that's a redundant statement because the word exhaustive means to pray about it all, and then to say with no exclusions just means to say pray about it all again. When God says, pray without ceasing, what do you think he means? <laughs> when he says, don't worry, but give how many of your concerns to him? All of your concerns to him. What do you think he means? See, but what we want to do is we want to pray this much and worry the rest of the time. We want to talk to God this much and we want to talk to everybody else that much. And whether it is a temptation or a trial, our go-to 
after what does God say in his word needs to be God, what shall I do? Matthew 26, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. A lot of people have good intentions, but they don't count. Now, I want to I want to teach you the simplest thing that will change your response to temptation if this isn't a habit in your life. What's the number one thing you should do when a opportunity to sin presents itself? Pray. Oh God, I need help. Do you know what you don't do when you don't pray? What you, excuse me, what you do if you don't pray? You think well, it could be this way, it could be that way, I could do this, I could do that. Da, 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 da. Pretty soon, you know what you're doing? You're doing the sin. Because you know what? You have a marvelous ability to rationalize what is wrong into what is right. Because ultimately, your flesh wants to do the sin. And that's why the go-to has to be prayer. Oh, God, oh, it's a temptation. God, do you think I should steal that thing? Do you think God will say yes? God, do you think I should have this immoral relationship just once? Well, you have had kind of a hard life, child. Go ahead. See, if we would think that way, it would change our strength. God has put the character of Christ in us, but we don't draw on that character through prayer. See, and those words were written to the disciples, remember, in the garden. When he's over here praying, he says, watch and pray. I'm going to go over here and pray and talk to God by myself. Will you watch and pray? And then he comes back and he says, watch and pray so that you don't fall into sin. And who really needed to listen to that? Peter. Jesus had told him, no, don't follow me. No, this isn't your time. Yes, I'm going to go with you anywhere. Watch and pray that you don't fall into sin. Not Peter, he's got a sword, and he's going with Jesus straight to the betrayal. Exhaustive prayer with no exclusions. Whenever we are struggling in any way, our first response needs to be to talk to God. Now let us have a little talk with Jesus. Let us tell him all about our trials he will hear our every cry and he will answer by and by that's what we got to do we got to have a little talk with jesus all the time number three strengthening fellowship with no isolation what do i mean by this i mean the body of christ is a source of strength in trial and temptation in hebrews we read these words let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You need to be in church and you need to be together with Christians in various venues, not just because it's easy or fun, but because you can draw strength from them and you can give strength to them. Hopefully when you come to church, you're thinking two things. One, God, please speak to me today. Please let me hear what you want me to hear. 
whether it's from the preacher or the song or the prayer or some person in the body of Christ, and let me say what you want me to say. Let me be what you want me to be to other people. The body of Christ, we all have spiritual gifts, but when we get into temptation and if we fall into sin, we like to isolate ourselves because we don't really want anybody to know what's going on in part because they'll say, stop it. They'll say, that's not good for you. We need that. Just like little kids need their parents to watch out for them, we need to watch out for one another, and we need to let other people watch out for us. And the last thing that we need is this, determined perseverance with no retreat. One of the challenges of the Christian life is perseverance. From James, we read these words. My brethren, take the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, who spoke in the name of the Lord. Take them as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job. You have seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. See, we look back at Job and we go, good job, Job! And God goes, you really mean that? Here, here's yours. Job was a righteous man before his trials, and he was a righteous man after his trials, and pretty much was a righteous man all through his trials. He struggled a little bit. God had to rebuke him a little bit, but pretty much he walked all through that. And Satan did not walk into heaven and go, I told you so. In fact, God went, hey, Satan, did you see Job? That's how that whole story started. He said, have you seen my servant Job? There's nobody like him. You know, and our tendency is, God, please don't draw any attention to me. But God wants to use us. We, we, we honor Job. Look at that endurance and that patience. We honor the prophets. They had people rejected their message and it was hard. And we say, good for them for keeping at it. We need to aspire to be like them. That's why Ephesians 6 says this, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all, to stand. Right now, our, our Seahawks friends are fighting for their lives. And some of them need to stand. And we honor them for putting up with adversity last week in the bitter cold. Ah, good job! Well, what kind of Christian do you want to be? Weak or strong? God wants you to persevere. It is part of his plan for the things we have to do as Christians. 2 Peter 1, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, patient obedience. I have, I have mixed feelings about the Powerball lottery prize of 1.6, I believe it was, or $1.5 billion dollars. I was glad on the one hand to hear that none of you won it because that means you aren't gambling, 
But I was sad that none of you won it because that would have been awesome for our debt retirement. <laughs> and maybe a couple of other things also. <laughs> you know, do you know what? Do you know what our biggest problem in life is as Christians? We want too little. We want that. Oh, wouldn't that be awesome? I don't know. Maybe. We aspire to win a billion dollars. We want a certain kind of politician in the White House. We crave health and status. When God offers us Christ-like character, we could be like Christ, and all we care about is winning the lottery. All we care about is take away my troubles, take away my challenges, and God says, I want to bring you Christ-likeness, and it will be the best thing you have ever had or ever will have. Heavenly Father, help us. Thank you that we can go through. Thank you that we can get, uh, we can escape the difficulties. We can make it through them, whether they be a temptation or a trial. Thank you. Thank you that we can grow up and be like Christ. May that be our experience this week. May we walk with you day by day, week by week. May we test out this verse this week and find the joy and liberation that you give us through it. I pray in Christ's name, amen.